Matthew 2, 13 to 15. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray, we pray, we unite our prayer together asking that by your spirit you would open our hearts. Help us to grasp the weight and significance of Christmas. And as we look at Christmas in the prophets, grip us with the beauty of your plan, the reality of your love, the salvation Christ brings. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Christmas in the prophets. In some senses, it doesn't get much easier than that if you're doing a series on Christmas in the Old Testament. I mean, the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Boom. Sermon done. He also prophesied in chapter 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. I mean, Christmas in the prophets dropped the mic. Or we could go to the prophet Micah. He told us, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Of course, the way I'm talking about it's a bit playful, but the level of precise detail written down centuries before Jesus was born is astounding. Christmas visited the prophets long before Christmas came about. And that's something that's worth considering. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Christ, we're glad you're here. This is a church we welcome people to come and watch and observe. But that's something you want to grapple with this morning. How did these people who lived so far before Jesus know exactly what would happen? God would say, this is what I'm going to do to save the world. And then he, do, he did it. Now we call these, I would call these kind of prophecies 
descriptive prophecies. Because God describes exactly what he's going to do, and then he did it. But these kind of descriptive prophecies, as important and profound as they are, only represent a sliver of the way the prophets pointed us to Christmas. It's like in the prophets we've been given a a box full of chocolates, the most delicious chocolates in the world. But since we found one that's particularly delicious, that we particularly like, we refuse to try any of the others. So as a preacher this morning, what I'm trying to do is to help you realize there is a whole box of goodness to enjoy. Yes, by all means, I want us to continue to enjoy those descriptive prophecies like I talked about at the beginning. But don't let that keep you from the whole box of deliciousness. Because there's a whole slew of ways, a whole a whole movement of ways within the prophets that they point forward to Christmas. And in order to open up the box to you, I'm going to do three things this morning. First, I'm going to make sure we have a right understanding of what a prophet was. Second, I'm going to explain another kind of prophecy, different than descriptive prophecy, which I'd like to call thematic prophecy. And third... I'm going to look at how these two work in the prophet Hosea. So what is a prophet? What's thematic prophecy? And how does that work in Hosea? It's the third section when we're looking into Hosea. We'll spend the most time there, and it's there we'll see a whole different kind of Christmas prophecy. A kind we're less accustomed to seeing, but one which I believe is every bit as profound. So let me just start by thinking about what a prophet was. For me, growing up, I always thought a prophet was primarily someone who predicted the future. I think often that's how Christians think about a prophet, as someone who tells what's going to happen in the future. I think that's because we pay so much attention to the times when the prophets give those kind of descriptive prophecies like the ones I gave at the beginning. Our fixation on that one particular chocolate in the box has skewed our understanding of the prophets. But prophets weren't primarily predictors of the future. They were primarily preachers. They would take what God had already said, perhaps through Moses, or usually through Moses, and then apply it with a cutting, profound precision to the generation to which they were speaking. Now, that doesn't mean they never spoke about the future. But when they did, their words about the future were always in service of what they were trying to say, the message they were conveying to their generation. So, just let me talk about how they would speak of the future. For example, if they were bringing a new word from God, that is, God had inspired and directed them to bring a new word, he would include specific prophecy about the future so that you'd know for a fact that their words were from God. Because anybody can come along and say, I'm bringing a message from God, and then say something, and who knows whether it is. So God set up a test. 
He said, all right, if you're going to speak for me, you have to be able to say something in the future, and it has to come about. And if you can't do that with 100% accurately, stone the guy because he's a false prophet. I, I know the future, right? So that's one way they would speak about the future. But, but often, the reason they spoke about the future is because God's message to that generation would include warnings about the future or encouragement about the future that, that was meant to shape how they would live then. God wanted them to live in light of his message of what he was going to be doing in the future. So these preachers had words about the future, but they weren't just descriptive prophetic. They were, this is the things that, these are the things that God is doing in the future. This is what he's going to bring about. And that kind of thematic preaching pervaded all of what they did. Now, there were, of course, in those days, plenty of prophets that were not inspired by God. They just had a prophetic gift. And they could still preach, often with the same kind of edgy ways of getting people's attention, trying to convey God's message to them. But if they were a faithful prophet, they would say nothing more than God had already revealed. And if they were an unfaithful prophet, well, they could say whatever they wanted, but they wouldn't know the future. And that would show that their message was valid, was not valid. So, that's important for us to understand. Prophets were preachers. And that was point number one. Prophets were primarily preachers, not predictors of the future. Now, if we, if we change then how we're viewing prophets and see them as preachers instead of predictors of the futures, it transforms how we look at them, it transforms how we read them, and that leads us to point number two. Because we're used to descriptive prophet prophecies, you know, a virgin will conceive, a priest after the order of Melchizedek will arise, one will come who will, who will be crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brings us peace will be upon him. These kind of descriptive prophecies we could liken to... Um, it reminds me of a story of Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, toward the end of his career, walked to the plate, and he pointed his bat at center field, indicating, I'm going to hit a home run right there. He called a shot, and then he hit it. Boom. Home run. Center field. That kind of calling your shot. It's something that the prophets would do. Descriptive prophecy. God would call a shot. But that wasn't the prophet's fundamental task. As preachers, there was a more fundamental way that their preaching was designed to point to the future. You see, the, the themes of their messages, the things that they were saying to their people, would all fall flat if there wasn't some future, grander fulfillment. You see, they would wet their, their, their congregation or, or the people listening to them, their audience's appetite. They'd wet their appetite for something. God's going to do this. God's like this. And the people go, but, but where's that fulfilled? Where's that longing met? Instead of Babe Ruth calling a shot, I think it's, I think it's more like a, a baseball movie where a team of down-and-outers is trying somehow to come together and win the pennant. 
And the director, as he's, as he's showing the movie, lays out all these hints throughout the movie as to what the team really needs. So, so as you watch, you begin to long not only for their season to succeed because of the way the directors made the movie, but you know, oh, I need a certain kind of figure. Somebody who can take these guys who are all squabbling and fighting with one another and show them that if we work together, bring them together, that that they can succeed. Someone who knows that Joey over here, if he can just focus on his defense, can really turn things around instead of being fixated on why he can't hit. And they also need someone who can just drive in some runs. right? So these hints are being laid out throughout the movie. And then towards the end, sure enough, the man walks in and unites the group, and is able to lead them, and all of us, everyone who's watching it, senses as soon as he comes, this is the man. This is the guy the team needs. It's as plain as day as to everyone who's watching the movie. You don't have to go through the movie and explain it all. At this point, he's predicting that this will be the man who would come. You just get it. It's obvious. The ball player fulfills what the movie up to that point has been pointing toward. See, that's what the prophets were doing. I call that thematic fulfillment. They were laying out clues all along, creating a longing and appetite all along that could only be fulfilled when one person walks in. He walks in, Jesus Christ, and he makes the picture complete. The themes of their message created a longing and expectation that could only be met by Jesus. Now, if you just read the prophets alone, if you read their books, you might not be able to specifically describe what Jesus would be like aside from those descriptive prophecies. But when Jesus comes at Christmas, you say, this is the man. It's obvious. It's as plain as day to anyone who's reading the prophetic message. So though the prophets do sprinkle in descriptive prophecies so that you'll know their words from God, these thematic prophecies are woven into every word they preached. Just for example, the prophets repeatedly speak of the people's need for heart-level change. They talk about how God isn't interested in just kind of outward religious deeds. He's interested in what the prophets call a circumcised heart. Yet, while they're saying your hearts have to change, we need a heart level change, they at the same time talk about how wicked man's heart is. So, So as you read these themes in the scriptures, there's a longing for someone or something external that can come along and do something at a heart level to change what needs to be changed at our very core and therefore rescue us. That's on the pages of most prophets. That's a theme that's sounded over and over. So when Christ shows up and says he didn't come to win some military or political victory, but rather to conquer sin, to rescue us from our sin, we say, this is the man. When he comes and he says he's come so that we can have new life, so that we can be born again, we get it. 
Because we've been watching that movie. We've been reading the prophets. He fulfills the prophetic message. This is the one to whom the prophets pointed. Now, I know at this point you're like, I came on Christmas Eve and I'm hearing a lecture on what prophets are and what prophecy is. But remember my heart as a preacher here this morning. There's a box of chocolates I want to open to you. I want you to be able to taste all of what's there when you read the prophets as it points to Christmas. Because I think some of the most profound joy, the most profound insights are through understanding that. So just at the, at the risk of overstating, I want to restate kind of what, what, I've, what we've covered so far. The prophets are more than preachers. They're predictors of the future, right? And then the inspired preachers or the inspired prophets who wrote the scriptures continue to bring out themes that create an appetite in us for something that only Christ can fulfill, something that only makes sense when Christ comes along, and I've called that thematic prophecy. All right? Those are the two things I've tried to cover. Now, if we've got all that, let's look at how that works in the prophet Hosea. And it's in doing that that we'll find Christmas in the prophets, but in a way, perhaps, that we're not accustomed to finding it. Now, the prophet Hosea preached during a time when Israel had certain outward signs of health, but they were crumbling spiritually and morally from within. God really wants his people to get the message of what's going on. So he directs his prophet Hosea to do something jarring, something attention-getting, something we might call prophetic. He directs him to marry a prostitute named Gomer. They have a child together named Jezreel. But then Gomer has two more children who are named... Think about naming your children this. One's named No Mercy. We have a child named Mercy. This one's named No Mercy. And the other child's named Not My People. Whether they were illegitimate children is unclear, but it is clear that Gomer goes back to her ways of prostitution. And then God directs Hosea to go back to Gomer again. So look at Hosea chapter 3. This is on page 752. If you're using the Pew Bible, 752. Hosea chapter 3. Listen to verses 1 to 3. And Yahweh said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. See what he does? 
He loves her. Redeems her. And then they pledge themselves afresh to one another in covenant loyalty. Now, like I said, sometimes the prophets did some unorthodox things to try to get people's attention, and this is certainly an example of that. And if you've grown up in the church and you know the book of Hosea, this is probably the story you know. It might be all you know about the book of Hosea, but really, this story that I just covered is only chapter 1 and chapter 3 of a 14-chapter book. The rest of the book of Hosea is God's message to Israel. The real-life parable that Hosea is asked to live out is just meant to underscore or underline the broader message that God is giving his people. And the predominant, that means the most often-sounded message of the book of Hosea, is that Israel is like an unfaithful prostitute. From chapters 4 to 10, God rails against Israel for her infidelity, basically saying over and over again, you are an unfaithful whore just like Gomer. So listen to chapter 4, verses 9 to 13 to get a sense. And it shall be like people, like priest. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken Yahweh to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Some of your kids are like, did he just say whore that many times? I didn't say it. I was just reading the Bible. Listen, listen to his assessment in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or you look at chapter 7, verse 13. I'm going to pick up in the middle. It says, Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Or chapter 9, verses 16 to 17. I'm just giving you a feel. This is just reflective of the language in, in the first 10 chapters. So chapter 9, verses 16 and 17 says, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And then chapter 10 ends, verse 15. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great is evil. 
At dawn, the kings of Israel shall be utterly cut off. You get the sense? A blistering attack on Israel's gross, sinful rebellion. Her sin is so dark, so evil, and so senseless. It has ruined her. And and when you read the book of Hosea, you don't get the sense that, oh, they've done such awful things that God has to, to say, oh, you've done some awful things. But rather, the things they've done, they don't realize are as significant and as bad as they are. So God's saying, yeah, I get it. You guys say you love me. Yes, you go through these outward motions, but you gotta realize what's going on in your heart. And so I want you to realize that those little heart things that are going on, man, they are terrible. They are unfaithfulness to a God who loves you. Might be a wake up call to us. But then, something weird happens. Now, it's not weird because we know the story that starts the little lived out parable that starts the, the prophecy. But it's still weird when you've been reading from chapters 4 to 10 these blistering statements. The tone changes drastically in chapter 11. An expert in Hosea, Derek Kidner, says chapter 11 is one of the boldest chapters in the Old Testament. Indeed, in the whole Bible, in exposing to us the mind and heart of God in human terms. I mean, listen to some of the language that's here. I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. Listen to God's fatherly love for his child Israel. He says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. But they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Or skip ahead, verses 8 through 10. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God. And not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They should go after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Sounds a lot different than what I was reading from chapters 4 to 10, doesn't it? Now, just by way of being faithful to the book of Hosea, it doesn't mean everything in chapters 11 to 14 is like that. There's still some dealing with their sin mixed in. What changes is the tone. Listen how chapter 14 ends. I'm going to read verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. You see the shift? 
Why the change? Why does God go from lambasting the infidelity of Israel to tenderly calling to her again? What motivates Yahweh to love Israel despite her sin? Well, there is a hinge in the book of Hosea, a moment in which everything turns, a moment in which everything changes. And that moment is chapter 11, verse 1. This is the most important verse that we're going to read this sermon. Chapter 11, verse 1, the turning point in the book of Hosea says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What? drives the change. What drives the change is that God reminds Himself of how He loved Israel in the early days. He rescued His child, His beloved son, out of Egypt, and that changes everything. I'm going to call this His I rescued my son out of Egypt love. It is His I rescued my son out of Egypt love that allows Hosea to return to Gomer. It is his I rescued my son out of Egypt love that allows him to take unfaithful Israel and woo her back. Now when I talk about I rescued my son out of Egypt love and you hear some of that language, fathers, you know the kind of love that God is pointing to. I think of my son. Heaped up in his bed. A mess. Because all his sin's been on display. He's made a mess of everything. And he's crumpled up in his bed crying, saying, I'm overwhelmed. And what does my heart do? It loves him. It's tender toward him. It wants to go to him and hold him in his tears and tell him about our love and our forgiveness and the grace of God. That's the Father's heart. That's the kind of love God has for his people. Stop and think about it. Even though we're sinners, even though we're not lovable, even though we've scorned His love, God loves us with that fierce yet tender fatherly love that aches for a hurting son. God loves us with an I rescued my son out of Egypt love. It's astounding. You gotta let it sink in. And it's not just in eleven one, you already heard it in other parts of chapter eleven. It's really what dominates the rest of the book of Hosea. Look at chapter eleven, verse eleven. Israel is now enslaved to Assyria, or is going to be enslaved to Assyria. And yes, they might be trying to get help from Egypt and things like this, but, but listen to verse 11. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. When God's talking about restoring them, he uses Exodus imagery. When he rescued them out of Egypt, he uses that language to describe him rescuing them, I think, out of Assyria. 
but he talks about it as Egypt because he's echoing that. Their present situation, he uses the language of the Exodus to describe how he's loving them then. Or look at um, chapter 12, verse 9. I am Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt. Or again in chapter 13, verse 4. But I am Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt. He roots his relationship with them not back to Abraham, not back to Sinai, but back to Egypt. Why? Because the turning point in the book of Hosea is God's I rescued you out of Egypt love. That is a profound love. It's the love that motivates Homer to return to Gomer. It's the love that motivates Yahweh to return to Israel. It is the I rescued my son out of Egypt kind of love. And that love is a big deal. It is a turning point in what is perhaps the most profound book in the Old Testament on God's fierce, protective, paternal, tender love. So I want to just offer three reasons that I think hope that I that I think capture the significance of this love in Hosea. I'm just trying to kind of bring together the work we've done. First, it shows the kind of love God has for his people. God's love for his people is the kind of tender love that aches to protect and rescue. That's God's heart. If God's heart is a book and you could open its cover, there would come radiating out of it a tender, protecting, rescuing kind of love. We see that. But secondly, within Hosea, it shows us the one hope that sinners have. Now, not everyone here might be convinced that they're a sinner. Much of our society is self-righteous, though they wouldn't call us that because self-righteous is a sin, so they wouldn't want to do that, so they wouldn't call themselves self-righteous. But they're reliant on themselves and the inherent goodness of themselves. So you might be here and not understand you're a sinner. And just I hope that in time God helps you see your heart as it is. But for the rest of us, the book of Hosea shows us the one hope that sinners have. When Israel was in such a predicament because of her infidelity to Yahweh, even though it was not even all that conscious, it was just because her heart wasn't in the right place. She was doing a lot of the outward things right. When Gomer was chained to the whims of another pimp, what hope was there? What hope do sinners have? It's really only one. The tender love of God for his beloved child. That's the second reason God's I rescued my son out of Egypt love is so significant. Because it's our only hope as sinners. And the third is that it shows when God redeems. Notice that God goes back to the exodus to describe the start of his love for his people. He loves them when they are needy. He loves them when they're desperate. He loves them when they have no other hope. God redeems those who are desperate, who are calling out to him because they're without any other hope. So God's heart, when you open that door, it's a tender paternal love. The only hope of sinners is God's tender paternal love. And when God redeems is when we realize our desperate state and cry out to him. 
or even perhaps don't even realize it like in Hosea. And all of that, all that I'm talking about could be summed with that phrase, God's, I rescued my son out of Egypt love. That's the hope for sinful Israel. That's the prophetic longing, that thematic prophetic longing that I'm talking about. You read Hosea and you're Israel, and either you stiffen your neck and say, that's not me, how could he talk about me like that? Or you say, that's me, what is my hope? And now you're longing for the, that, that kind of God's, I rescued my son out of Egypt love. That's what you're longing for. And that's the key to understanding Hosea's prophecy. 11.1. Now what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Everything. At least that's what Matthew tells us. So let's have a look. Turn back to what I read at the very beginning. Matthew chapter 2. It's on page 808. It's just a few pages forward. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now I want to tell you what happens. Just a little backstory. Most of you know this, but it's important for what we're doing here. Um, the, 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 the wise men have come and have told Herod that there's this king born. And he goes, that's not good. I need to get rid of him because I don't want any rivals. So he sets about to have the wise men tell him where the king is so he can kill him. But the wise men are warned. They go a different direction. And so Herod decides, okay, the only way to deal with this is I'm going to wipe out everyone two years, every male two years of age and and younger. They're just all going to die, so there won't be any rivals. But God warms Joseph, and well, I'll pick up. Verse 13. Now when they departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the parallels to the Exodus are just beautiful here. Israel originally went to Egypt because they were going to get wiped out because of famine. So God brings them to Egypt to protect them. We saw that in Christmas and Genesis. But more profoundly, just as Herod saw Jesus as a threat and tried to wipe him out, so Pharaoh saw the people of Israel as a threat and said, I'm going to wipe out all the baby boys. But God wanted to raise up a deliverer to lead him out of Egypt, didn't he? And so he protects that baby boy, by putting him in a basket floating down the Nile, and where does he bring him to protect him? To the heart of Egypt, to Pharaoh's house, to protect the one who would deliver Israel out of Egypt. So when we read this, we're going, where's the basket? It's the only thing missing. Because God delivers him out into Egypt so that he won't be destroyed. Hosea, Matthew tells us, in this, he ends all this by saying, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew says, Christmas is all about God's I rescued my son out of Egypt kind of love. And to make the point 
God actually has Jesus' parents take him to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous attempt to destroy him. It's like God says, all right, that love that was described by Hosea, want to see it in action? Want to see it in a very tangible way? Want to see a picture of my tender, protective love for my son? Look at how I saved Jesus from Herod's murderous intentions by sending him to Egypt. If you take God's heart, if it's a book, and you open it up, his love for his only begotten son would come radiating out. But here's the mind-blowing part. That love that he has for his only begotten son, his eternal son, God's unique love for his unique son, Jesus, serves as a picture and a reminder of his love for all people. Because Hosea wasn't a descriptive prophecy. It was a prophecy that was thematic, that was talking about God's love for all his people. So God's loving rescue of Jesus serves as a reminder that he loves us in the same way. And nowhere is God's fierce, tender, protecting, and rescuing kind of love better seen than at Christmas. God's tender love compelled him to send his beloved son to rescue and redeem us from our misery. What love? See, Matthew isn't concerned with some simple descriptive fulfillment. That's not what he's talking about there in verse 15. Matthew understands he's quoting the hinge verse in all of the book of Hosea. He knows he's tapping into the theme of Hosea's whole book. Hosea's book that was about God's I rescued my son out of Egypt love, the book that shows God's fierce and tender love, a paternal love that wants to protect and deliver, a love that says, even though you're in your sin, I can rescue you. That kind of love that left those who heard it longing, where is that kind of love going to reach its fulfillment? That love is fulfilled here at Christmas when Jesus is born. So when you see Christmas, you should think Hosea's love song has reached its fulfillment. Hosea fulfilled at Christmas. But as we said, Hosea isn't just about God's love. Much of it's about how wretchedly sinful they are. And so it's a book of God's love as the hope for sinners. But there's something the book of Hosea doesn't do. It doesn't tell us how a God who's so angry about sin that he rails against it like we heard through most of the book can also allow his tender love to triumph over that judgment. Something, if you read Hosea, just, I, I get it, but it doesn't quite add up. How's that all going to fit together? But that's another way Christmas brings the fulfillment to the book of Hosea. You've been, you've been watching the movie. Well, he, he rails against sin. He's disgusted by it. It's so evil. And yet he wants to tender love. Take him and I'm going to embrace him. What's going on here? And then Jesus walks in. Christmas happens. And you see that God sent his son into the world to rescue sinners by taking our punishment for us by dying in our stead. Jesus didn't just come to show us God's love. He came to allow God to love us 
by paying the penalty of our sins. So our hope as rebels against God is a God who loves us enough to rescue us in our sin. I want to say it like this. Until we see ourselves as a gomer, one who's cheated on God and spurned him, the love Hosea describes will never make sense to us. Until we see ourselves like Egypt, enslaved and lost, needing a rescuer, the love Hosea speaks of will never make sense to us. But when we see that we are sinners without hope in this world, we long for what Hosea tells us to long for. God's, I rescued my son out of Egypt, love. And then Christmas comes. There's the man. We can finally see how God's able to rescue by taking on flesh, by swooping in to pay the price of our sins. Hosea fulfilled in Christmas. When we read the prophets, I think many of us just want to bite into one of those nice descriptive prophecies. And those are good chocolates. But do you see now what we're missing if that's all we focus on? Here's the book of Hosea. Who gave no descriptive prophecy about Jesus or Christmas. He's a preacher. Preaching, preaching a message of, of a, about a God who mourns over Israel's sin. Trying to help them see that they're way more sinful than they realize. Here's a preacher preaching a message about a God whose heart is tender and loving, who delights to rescue his beloved son. And then, God's unique beloved son, his eternal beloved son, is born and is rescued by going to Egypt and then being called out of Egypt. And Matthew grabs the mic and taps it. Is this on? Do you see what God's doing there? Christmas has fulfilled Hosea's sermon. The people in Hosea were told of God's I rescued my son out of love, out of Egypt, love for them. But the message was lost until Christ came and made it perfectly clear. So today and tomorrow, and over the next few days, as we think about Christmas, think Hosea. When you think Christmas, think of God's heart in Hosea. When you think Christmas, think, God is showing me his, I rescued my son out of Egypt kind of love. Let's pray. Father, the depths of your love, the kind of love you have for us, it's hard to grasp. Thank you for giving us a book like Hosea that begins to help us grasp it. Thank you that it's seen most clearly in Christmas. And I pray that everyone in this room would know that love in a deeper and more full way this Christmas. In Christ's name, amen.